the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you were to venture a guess, how old would you think that the oldest continuously running family business turns this year? Maybe 100 years? Maybe 400? Maybe you even venture a guess of 800 years old. But this year, the oldest continuously running family business turns 1,303 years old as we roll into 2021. It's located in Japan. The Hoshi Roiken Hotel, the name of which I'm sure I have done in great injustice, <laughs> has been owned and operated by the same family since 718 AD. Now that's 46 continuous generations that have served the same family business. Having observed a bit of a family business growing up, I know that that has to have been a challenge and they've learned many things along the way. And in fact, many business journals and periodicals have reached out asking how they've done it, what they've learned, and what makes them work for so many generations. But that's not why I bring it up today. I bring this up because in our gospel reading this morning from Mark 1 that we just heard, we have another family business that arises. And I want to talk about them in just a moment because we often gloss over what happens in their family business when confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we just look at it as kind of this passing idea that, of course, they would respond as such. But let's take a look at what the weight of the responsibility that they had to respond to from Jesus was and what that meant for them and their family. If you look back with me to Mark 14, either in your Bible or in person as you follow along on the screens, um, let's look first at the words of Jesus to which they responded and to which we are called to respond as well before we look at their example for us. So as you open up to this verse, we see first that um, it's coming after John was arrested. It gives us a, a bit of a orientation there, John being John the Baptist, as you well know. And this is important and significant because it shows that the overlap between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry has ended, and now Jesus' public ministry is completely in the forefront at this time. This verse marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with his own vocation. And as it does so, it tells us something else, that he goes out to the Galilean villages and towns like a wandering prophet, by contrast to John's ministry, where everyone came out in response to the words of John to a particular place. There's something significant there. Jesus goes to the people, and each individual who hears his words is called out into what God is doing. And there's a sense of urgency about it, that it cannot wait. While it hits each and every person where they are, um, it calls them to something greater. And the urgency of that message and the message itself is quite simple. It's captured in verse 15. And it's this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the waiting is over, 
The generations of waiting for the Messiah has come to an end. The waiting for the signs, anticipating the moments, looking for that arrival point has transpired. Jesus is here. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus proclaims now the kingdom of God is on the move. And for those who would have here ears to hear it, they have a choice to make. They must first repent and then believe the gospel. Those are the two action items that we'll look at just briefly, because those are the things that lead us to this family business that we'll look at lastly. It gives us due consideration if we look first at the word repent. I think we have to acknowledge that, at least in Western Christianity, we interpret that word in a very specific and kind of myopic way. Um, it is heard this way, stop sinning and embrace Jesus. And in many ways, um, I liken it to that Bob Newhart skit where Bob Newhart's a therapist, right? Maybe you've seen it. Um, his whole business is gathering people in um, to come to therapy, and they pay all of this money to come and hear him say two words. If you've seen it, it's, it's quite comical, where no matter what they say or what's going on in their lives, his response is just stop it. Just stop it. Whatever you're doing, just stop it. And but, but, no, just stop it. And so that's kind of how we in Western culture hear the word repent. Just stop it. Just stop it, believe in Jesus, and get on with it. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we have to acknowledge in some sense that we wrestle with. And while that's not wholly wrong, it's not wholly complete in the understanding of a biblical knowledge of repentance. It does include stop it and whatever that may be in your own life and mine, but it also includes a couple things in context that are equally as relevant then as they are now. The first was repentance included in Jesus' day, a turning away from the social and political agendas of Israel that were driving it into a ruinous war. And it had been since the days of the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. They'd been fighting off the rise of the Roman Empire. There were zealots even in the small towns that wanted to reestablish Jerusalem as not only just the religious center, but the political center of Israel, to reinstate her to her former glory. And that's what they understood or hoped and anticipated the Messiah would bring. By contrast, there's others, probably in these sleepy towns to which Jesus first goes in Galilee, who just want to be left alone. They don't want to be concerned with such things. They don't care about them. And in fact, in some cases, they want to have their cake and eat it too. King Herod is the failed example of this one. Namely, have the benefits of this global empire uh, and being a part of it as a Roman, but then also kind of straddle the religious and moral structures of Judaism so that they kind of have a little bit of both. And it just doesn't quite fit, even in this case, in his case, by marriage. Now, I bring this up because these are the subtexts going on beneath the word repent in Jesus' opening declaration. And I think I don't have to draw the connections over the past several weeks for you about the similarities even in Jesus' time to our own time. Human nature is the same, and it's a little raw for us. In fact, we're, we're sick of talking about it and hearing about it, but the gospel doesn't allow us to just kind of sidestep that issue all together. Just as a public service announcement and a reminder for you about the clergy, whenever we preach, we don't pick our texts, as is the case in certain uh, realms, but they're already set in a cycle. So on this day, 
This is the reading we hear, and God always has something to say in his word. And so here stands Jesus in the midst of all that's going on in our world, wherever we are on all sides of these things, living and active in the pages of scripture so as to say, kingdoms will come and go, leaders will change, but Jesus does not, nor does the urgency of engaging the gospel as it's presented to us down through the ages. And the first part of that is to repent, not merely from the things that we should just stop doing, but the things that we haven't done that we should be doing. And there's a big void often there in Christian culture that we have to acknowledge. And the reason I'm talking about Christian culture is, remember that when Jesus is preaching this, or really proclaiming this to people who would have ears to hear, he's not talking to pagan people. He's actually talking to faithful Jewish men and women who maybe were very devout, or at least, at the very least, were just culturally Jewish, and they had ears to hear the context of this. They maybe have embraced the law, or at least the moral aspects of it. And so, in so confronting them with this word repent, he's basically saying the, the outcome of repentance is a true and wholehearted trust back in Yahweh, back in God. You got to get back to that, is what Jesus is saying. And there's an urgency in his call. Now, they knew in their context this wouldn't happen wholly, until God redeemed Israel at last. But Jesus is signaling that time has come, it is now, and it is unfolding. The moment of your freedom has arrived. God's rescue plan has commenced as Jesus now stands before them. But as we know, this side of salvation history, it doesn't come in the way that they expect it. All of those who are like, yes, the Messiah has arrived, let's go to Jerusalem and do this thing, are in for a rude awakening that that's not what's going to happen. In fact, it will happen, but doing this thing would mean that Jesus would be crucified, and the kingdom which he brings has far outlasted any other kingdom that they could even fathom. And so while these things are on their mind, they don't play out in the way that they expected. And they are called to respond wholeheartedly where they are. And by God's grace, while this kingdom inaugurated or begun on the other side of the cross hasn't yet been fully established, it includes us in God's mercy so that we too may still have time to respond, that we still too may join in with this thing that Jesus is doing in advancing the kingdom of God. The overarching principle of this first lesson of repentance, namely, is that repentance is all-encompassing. Repentance is is a reorientation of trust on every single level, not just the ones that we want to engage. And so that's the first stop, I think, for us this day, that it meets us with the same sense of urgency and meets us where we are. And we don't have to do a whole lot of soul-searching to think through, where do I not wholeheartedly trust Jesus in my life? There's those areas where I'm good with that. I'll give all my time and resources to the church, whatever that's fine, but don't ask me to do, fill it in, right? Um, or, you know, I, I'll, I'll write a check every week, but, I, you know, I really am not good beyond an hour a week on Sunday mornings. I mean, I've done what you've asked me to do, right? Whatever it may be, it's different for every person, but Jesus knows that we can't find happiness apart from him, and by his grace, he never asks us to have a dual nature within us, but says, no, I want all of you. I always have, and I always will, because you won't find joy you won't find purpose or peace anywhere else. And so there is the call for us. 
And as we look back to the text, let's engage with that context. Back in verse 17, these two families and what they do, as we know, this side without hesitation. Having heard this call of Jesus, having heard those words, repent and believe in the gospel, what do they do? They respond. And they respond without delay. Jesus, you know, we have this image of him walking by the seaside and just kind of says, well, um, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, it isn't without context. They've heard these words. They've been murmured down through. Maybe they haven't seen Jesus yet themselves, but they're aware of what's going on. And having that rolled over and ruminated upon it and chewed on in their own minds and thought through, when Jesus says this, they've wrestled a lot of that down. And what do they do? They follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And that's no small feat. We often think, well, that's, you know, that's kind of neat, you know, but Jesus wouldn't call me to do that. Um, He just is kind of asking me to follow along, but these are great examples. Well, we forget, I mean, we don't know how many generations back in a family business James and John, the sons of Zebedee, go, but it's certainly farther back than just James, John, and their dad. In fact, they're confronted with something far different in their need to repent than those who are looking for kingdoms and empires. They're confronted, perhaps, with their comfort. Because for generations, they had family business. And they had a choice, right? When it got hard, they just worked harder. Spent a few more hours out on the lake, spent a few more hours out in the marketplace, they'd make it work. And when things were good and empires rolled into town, they just kept their head down. And they could just keep going. And they had a comfortable life, out removed. They could engage or not engage. And in many cases, they just weathered all of these storms that rolled through their towns and villages. And here comes Jesus with another message, repent and believe in the gospel. And so for them, part of their repentance is having to turn away from everything they had known and perhaps everything that they had expected they would continue on with. It's a big ask, but they respond, turning away from their own idols of comfort and even their own ideologies and securities to walk out in the unknown, quite literally leaving their dad, figuratively their entire business in the case of James and John, and following Jesus into a place they'd never been, nor knowing where he would lead them. And thus this call, this urgency, this proclamation that the time is now, the kingdom of God is hand. Jesus has met them with both repentance, and then we engage the last word in that action item, which is belief. Now, for us, we know that belief is an embracing something with our mind and our understanding. But these humble fishermen show us that belief is not merely basic consent, but it's a bold commitment. It's not just merely an intellectual choice to follow Jesus or a verbal acknowledgement, sure, that'll work, but it means they get out of their boat and they follow Jesus into places they'd never been, into situations they were not equipped, and to do the things in the advancement of the kingdom of God that's entrusted to them on the other side of Pentecost that they had never been equipped to do in that moment, but they would be by God's grace. The only thing they knew was the one they followed, and the destination would be wherever he took them. And the same is true today. The same has been true down through the ages, that I and you or anyone in Christendom is called to first sever ties with everything else, commitments and bonds and everything else, so that we are confronted with this proclamation and embrace it wholeheartedly. What that looks like for each of us is going to look a little different, but it also means that we can't kind of have our cake and eat it too. 
It means that we have to be fully in with what Jesus has called us to do. And daily, we need to be reminded of our need first to repent because we live in the muck and the mire of the principalities and powers of this age, to borrow a Pauline phrase. And we need a daily reorientation of our trust so that we may embrace with wholehearted belief what Jesus calls us to do, which comes in simple ways, but the simple ways lead to the big decisions to get out of the boat. Namely, to be rooted in the living and active Word of God so that we make time to hear what He has to say, to be prayerful and to be obedient in the little things that God calls us to do that may make no sense to us at all, but we know that those are the ways that we are stepping into our portion of the kingdom of God. It means is that we find ways when we engage the world around us not to um, try to absorb it all, but to turn that around in prayer and ask God, what is our response? Which might be looking different from the person next to us. But how does God call us to engage the world for Jesus around us? It's time for us to embrace fully the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Beloved, it's time to move from platitudes to placing firm steps in the footsteps of Jesus. It's time to move beyond intellectual ascent to action. It's time to move from lesser things to kingdom things as we advance and embrace what God has called us to do individually and in the life of our church. I don't need to remind you that the church is needed now in the world more than it ever has been. But first, the church and her members must get their own house in order and repent and return to the Lord in the areas that we've neglected corporately and individually so that we can do that work in the world around us and in every place that God calls us because you're an ambassador for his kingdom wherever you go. And if we do that, in the small ways of daily repentance and in the big ways of moving things around to obey and believe and embrace what God has called us to do, it will change not only our nation but the world and the course of history in ways that we could never fathom because our minds can't even comprehend what God wants to do. So may we cooperate with that. May we, in a sense, step into the family business, the business of God as children of God, so that we may walk in the footsteps of our brother Jesus, pursuing our heavenly Father, stepping into that in our generation for the generations behind us, to honor the generations that have gone before us, and to pull as many people around us into that work as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.